and welcome to the Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This is the evidence-based podcast that tells you everything you need to know about implementing evidence-based practice in paediatrics. We have a little tiny snippet about how to do that and then two clinical cases that have had their inspiration from clinical practice and the authors have gone away, searched the evidence, appraised it and brought it back with something that you can turn into an evidence-based way of being. Now, of course, evidence-based medicine is something we've talked about for an awful long time. And every month or so, we have this this section we call towards evidence-based medicine because we always know that we're going there. We've not actually got there. There is an issue about being convinced in an evidence-based medicine sense that our recommended treatments will, on average, do more good than harm. But how we get to that point of convincing is quite tricky. Sometimes it's not quite tricky because if there's a low toxicity, cheap intervention that seems to have a a relatively good effect, so paracetamol for pain for example, that's straightforward. But sometimes it really is tricky. For example, third-line chemotherapies for relapse during sarcoma. Where is the benefit against the harm that will occur? And the process of getting to an understanding of where that decision falls on the go versus not go side may be conceptualised as determining the outcomes that are important, important to your patient, assessing how sure we are about those on each of those outcomes, converting them into some sort of common metric so that you can balance them against each other, and then ranking their relative importance. So the ones that are of greater import to your patient come up higher and then balancing those the good ones against the bad ones the pluses against the minuses now the first step here means we need to work out what the outcome is intended to cause so for example reduced death in Ewing's sarcoma and how we sure we are about it for the potential treatments and that's usually given to us by the 95 percent confidence interval It's easiest if we use these as absolute measures, so for example, six deaths per 100 population treated. If we have only relative risks, it halves the risk compared to another treatment, we can calculate that absolute, but we need a baseline first. So in our country, in our region, then in this setting, 100 people die, and so half of it, it's going to be 50 people die. The same can then be done with the adverse effects, again translated in the same sort of common metric. And then you need to modify how important they are to people. Otherwise, we would look at a 1 out of 50 reduction in deaths and a a 1 out of 10 risk of a mild rash occurring and then saying, well, 1 out of 50 on the benefit side is is much lower than 1 out of 10 on the harm side, so we shouldn't do it. now, though, that's, that's clearly a ridiculous example, but there are versions of that. How you do that balancing can be done at an individual level with patients. But if you're going to do it with guidelines or policies, uh, it's best doing where you've, you've looked at those preferences over the whole of a population. Then you can use those to come up with an importance-adjusted estimate of the good versus the bad. And then you rank them against each other and see which one comes out on top but you also take into account the uncertainties. So say the risk of benefit over harm ranges between 5 to 1 to 250 to 1, then it becomes less clear than if it's 5 to 1 to 6 to 1. 
Now, normally you won't go through these steps mathematically or work them out on paper or ask people to say which of these and how much is this compared to another. But if you are thinking about tricky challenges in treatment, it might be worth using that as a conceptual model to work out how you're going to come up with a solution to which is the right thing to do and then direct that problem in a very clear and transparent way at the next process in evidence-based medicine. Now, our first case this time comes from Saragani, Weatherby and Beardsell at Cambridge and West Sussex. They ask a question all about the need to do ultrasound on newborns who have an isolated, simple sacrococcygeal dimple. Now, doing the baby checks, and I'm sure all of us have loved our time doing baby checks, somebody notices that there is a simple sacrococcygeal dimple. And by simple, that means relatively shallow, relatively away from the anus and not very big. And they went away and said, what's the evidence to say whether we should ultrasound these to see if they're associated with spinal abnormalities, particularly splitting in the vertebrae, spinal dysraphism? One that might be an anomaly that requires surgery that would have otherwise led to problems. And they went away and they searched PubMed and they searched Cochrane. Now you might think, why did they search Cochrane? Cochrane's full of treatment things. It is, but there is an emerging amount of Cochrane systematic review evidence in diagnostics and also a little tiny bit in prognostics as well. So it is becoming useful for non-treatment things as well. Anyway, they didn't find anything in Cochrane, but it was sensible to look. They found 84 potentials in PubMed, and that was a systematic review and two other papers that went afterwards. The systematic review had 5,166 different neonates in that all had sacral dimples over the course of nine different cohort studies, and they found that when they pulled all that together, only 3.4% of those with the simple sacrococcygeal dimples had an abnormal ultrasound scan. And of all those babies, only 0.2% of them actually had something that required something done about it. The largest of the other two studies, one of them was 18 neonates and one of them was 439, came up with similar sorts of numbers, around about 8.5% with an abnormal ultrasound result and 1.5% requiring some surgery to correct it. It was a bit unclear as to whether they definitely excluded all of the less than straightforward dimples and that would be ones that were big over two and a half centimeters or they were near the anus or there were other abnormalities on the child. When they put all this together they come to the conclusion that the actual benefit you get versus the excessive amount of work that would have to be done to find it was really very small and they have suggested that an isolated, simple, sacral dimple does not warrant routine investigation. Now, the second one of our items is all about the fascinating subject of jejunal feeding in children. Not something we do an awful lot of, but Harriet Barraclough and Kat Cook from the Department of Paediatrics at the Leeds Children's Hospital, situated at the Leeds General Infirmary in Leeds, did have a situation where they found a child that was pancytopenic. Now, obviously, you know, I'm an oncologist and pancytopenia only means really interesting things like leukemia, aplastic anemia, invasive sarcomas. But they didn't find any of those fascinating diagnoses and they struggled to find what was going on. 
Eventually, they discovered that the patient's copper level was very low, and then wondered why, why, why has this happened? And they went away and asked the question, is it to do with the jejunal feeding? So they went away, had a look at Medline and Embase, pulled together what they could, and came back with six particular things that could be relevant and were actually in humans. Of these, four of them were of relevance to us here. They were all case series because this is an extremely rare occurrence and pulled together that in eight different patients they had significant problems secondary to copper deficiency. Copper deficiency coming actually after some months of jejunal feeding and the ranging from neurological dysfunction and also as they, as they had with their patient uh, problems with bone marrow function. It's probably that if you do jejunal feeding you skip the bit of bowel that takes the copper in and the feeds may not be adequate to give that amount of copper in. What they conclude is that jejunally fed patients are at risk of cough deficiency, although it's not enormous, um, it, and it's really actually difficult to quantify because that's only a few case reports in amongst many patients that have been done. However, it is worth looking at probably six months and then maybe even annually in the asymptomatic patients that are continuing to be jejunally fed. So this is long-term jejunal feeding and that that could present the problems, particularly the problems of aplasia and leukopenia and progressive myelopathies that can run ha happen when the copper levels are very low. Now that's all for this month. I hope that you've enjoyed our little podcast on evidence-based practice and if it's inspired you to think, I wonder what the evidence is behind that then crack on and get your Archimedes written. And you too could be having your stuff talked about or maybe even be interviewed on this very podcast. Until next month, enjoy your evidence-based paediatrics. <laughs>